Father, I can hardly imagine a song more better suited to this message than the one we just sang. Praise you, Father, for sending your Son. Praise you for the glory of what he accomplished on our path. Praise you, Father. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. We praise you, Lord. And we give you thanks this morning for your work of atoning grace. And we praise you not only that you you died on the cross to expunge our demerit before God, but that you lived 33 years in perfect righteousness so that we might be justified before God. Help me, Father, to communicate that clearly today. And may your spirit in the word have its transforming effect on us. May we willingly put ourselves under the sway of the Holy Spirit this morning to hear what he would have said to the church. And may you give us hearts that are willing to be moved by it and changed by it. And all of it for the praise of your glorious grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and on a rapid trek to get us to chapter 20 by the day Easter arrives. And working through this part of John's inspired narrative, Jesus' life and teaching, it gives us a tremendous opportunity to see some things about the gospel that we normally, naturally don't see because it's not the natural flow out of many other texts that we might look at. Last week, we learned about two particular gospel terms. One of them was propitiation and the other substitution. Propitiation, we learned last week, speaks of a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God and therefore makes God propitious, that is, favorable toward us rather than angry and hostile toward us. We saw this last week when Jesus asks Peter this question. He's being arrested. Peter just tried to kill somebody, and Jesus says, put your sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And the answer is a resounding yes. That's the expected answer. I must drink this cup. And what is the cup? We learned last week it was the cup of the Father's wrath. It was the cup of the Father's wrath by which he crushed his son in an act of holy and just wrath against sin. Not Jesus' sin, but ours. Substitution, on the other hand, speaks of the amazing reality that Jesus drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. It was supposed to be us who drank the cup of wrath, but we get the cup of blessing instead. He suffered and died in our place. And we just sang that. In my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a savior, right? And I hope you sang out, hallelujah. You can say that right now. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. This is substitution. Theologians sometimes refer to it as the vicarious atonement, because Jesus suffered and died on the cross vicariously. That is, in place of another, namely, 
in place of me and you. This morning, I want to introduce you to one more term that has a couple of sub-terms to it. All of these are connected, and that term is mediator. The term is mediator, not meteor. That's something from outer space. This is mediator. Since sinners are by nature alienated from God and because of our sin, we need someone to stand between us and God. We need a mediator. If you are in conflict with someone, there are a lot of institutions get hired. They say, if you have a problem with us legally, you agree to have a mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is like a lawyer who stands between the two parties and, and seeks reconciliation. They want to bring about reconciliation. And in the Old Testament, this was the role of the priesthood. The priests would stand between man and God and offer the appropriate sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, propitiation, killing an animal in their place, that substitution, and they would do it as a mediator. As a mediator. And that was the priest's job. But there was a problem. A human priest could only represent man. To God. He could not adequately represent God to man. The Old Testament priesthood, therefore, was deficient. And the book of Hebrews explains this rather explicitly. In order for sinners to be fully reconciled to God, they needed a more excellent priest than could ever be produced in humanity from men. But there's more. Having a better priest is wonderful. However, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Again, the book of Hebrews spells this out for us. So there had to be a more excellent sacrifice. You see, even if the blood of certain animals could atone for our sins, we would still have, the, we'd still have a major problem because Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 20, this shocking statement, unless your righteousness, unless your what? Righteousness. I want you to be thinking about righteousness all the way through this message. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, they were the most righteous, at least in the eyes of men. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of God. And then, of course, if you're thinking about this and you're wondering, what does that mean? Give me, give me a measuring rod. How do I... How do I determine how righteous that is? So Jesus says later in verse 48, therefore, you must be perfect. And as a good Bible student, you're going to say, Jesus defined perfect, and he does. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a problem. You have to be as good as God to get into heaven. You've got to be as righteous as God. I mean, that kind of lays us all out, right? It's hopeless. I've shared this with many people in evangelistic conversations, and, and sometimes they say, that's not fair. I mean, nobody, who can measure up? You're a pastor. You can't measure up to that. Absolutely. You're beginning to get it. We're hopeless. There's nothing we can do to rectify that situation. I've already blown it. The day I sinned the first time, the day my mother tried to 
feed me milk and I didn't want it, or she wasn't feeding me and I did want it, and I, I, I launched my first rebellion on that day, it was over. You must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father was perfect. Now, we understand that, uh, that having all of our demerit expunged from our record by means of the sacrifice is not enough. If we lack positive merit, which is righteousness, we, if, if all we have is Jesus washing away, what can t- wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus, great song, great truth, It's only half the story, but it's the one that we camp out on all the time. And I would dare say most believers don't understand the other half. Because if all we have is the washing away of our sins, and we desperately need that, if all we have is our demerit taking away, that leaves us a big zero. We don't have any sin anymore to condemn us, but that's not the only requirement. We also have to be as good as God. Where do we get that righteousness? Where do we get that? This, too, is why Jesus came. He came as our great high priest to offer the perfect sacrifice and to provide the righteousness that God requires. And then the question, how? How did Jesus provide the righteousness that we need? Well, he did it by living a perfectly righteous life. Did you ever ask yourself, why in the world did did he come for 33 years? Why not just, you know, come down on Thursday, get everybody mad, cross on Friday, home by Sunday? <laughs> Why 33 years? Answer, as a mediator, he had to be both God and man. And as a real man, he had to be born like a, like a real human baby that he was. And he had to suffer everything that we suffer and face every temptation that we face, yet without what? Sin, right? He had to fulfill all righteousness. You remember at his baptism, and John the Baptist getting ready to baptize him? And reluctantly, and Jesus says, baptize me. And, and, and John says, listen, you know, I mean, you're the righteous one. I'm just, I'm a sinner. I mean, that's kind of the implication there. We can infer that that's John's attitude. And John, uh, Jesus says to John, no, 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 John. I must fulfill all righteousness. The law requires this. I must do it, even though I am above it because I've never sinned. I must fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because his mission was to save us, and our only hope was that he would complete the mission entirely, not only expunging our sin, but making for us a genuine righteousness that can be credited to our account. So Paul writes this letter to Rome called Romans. Clever title. (laughs) And in the book of Romans, the the book of Romans is primarily, especially the first third of the book of Romans, is about the question of righteousness. Where do sinners get the righteousness that they desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. By the way, that should be a part of your evangelistic strategy, helping people see that there is a righteousness they desperately need, they don't have, and they can't earn. So where do you get it? 
And Paul's answer in the book of Romans, we're preaching out of John, so you can do your own study on Romans. But in Romans chapter 5, which I'll come back to here at the end of this sermon, Romans chapter 5, Paul's answer is this, Christ for righteousness. Christ for righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 19, he says, I'll give you a little foretaste. For as through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Through the obedience of Jesus. Through the obedience of Jesus. Through the righteousness of Christ. Through the sinlessness of Christ. Not just sinlessness, that is, he has no demerit, but positively he is full of righteousness, has fulfilled all righteousness. By that, the many will be made righteous. The active obedience of Jesus Christ. There's another term. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. This is so important. Theologians refer to this as Jesus' active obedience. They refer to his death on the cross As his passive obedience, he lets others do to him what needs to be done. But his whole life, 33 years of active obedience. And he did that on our behalf as well. Not just his death, but his active obedience. Two verses later, in the book of Romans, we looked at Romans 5.19 there. Two verses later, Paul ties it all together when he exalts that, see if this verse rings a bell, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. It's the great exchange. All of my sin for all of his, what? Righteousness to the praise of his glorious grace. And by his sacrifice, our demerits, our sins are forgiven, and by his righteousness, we are declared righteous. Another term here, justification, means to declare righteous. God declares us righteous legally, forensically, not based on anything that we have done, but on the righteousness of Christ It is applied righteousness. It is a righteousness that we get, Martin Luther said, extra nos. It is outside of ourselves. It comes to us from the outside. He calls it an alien righteousness. It comes from out there, not in here. It comes from Christ. This is the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' work as mediator. He came to represent men To God as our high priest, our once for all sacrificed and our perfect righteousness. Hence Paul can say in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And that phrase, the man, Christ Jesus, so significant. Beloved, you just need to know that every temptation Jesus faced, he never cheated He never tapped into his deity. He did miracles, but never in battle against temptation. He faced every temptation the way you do. 
as a man, as a woman. He had to. He had to. Otherwise, there would not be the righteousness that we needed credited to our account. Well, there's so much here. This morning, I want to focus on this last point regarding the righteousness or the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. He lived for 33 years in absolute obedience to the Father. Every aspect of Jesus' life and character was perfectly holy and righteous and good. As Adam was, per- in, uh, was perfect in the garden, so Jesus was perfect in the manger. Unlike Jesus, Adam gave, it, gave himself over to sin. And unlike Adam, Jesus never sinned. Never sinned. And so we read in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, what class? Without sin. Never sinned. And so the passage this morning highlights this fact through a suspense-filled narrative. And I was, I was kind of bummed last night because I, I know my time is short and, I, and we have this chapter break here at, at 19 and I have to stop there this morning for the sake of time. And I wish we could just spend, I don't know, a couple more hours together and keep it all intact, but we'll do what we can. The passage this morning highlights through the suspenseful narrative that no matter how Jesus, how the Jewish leaders treated Jesus, no matter how hard they tried to make him out to be guilty of crimes punishable by death, no one is able to demonstrate that Jesus was anything but guiltless and innocent of all accusations. There are three main sections to this passage, and I've kind of artificially labeled them. Number one, the guiltless one is accused. Number two, the guiltless one is interrogated. And number three, the guiltless one is rejected. Let's look at the first. The guiltless one is accused. Look at verses 28 through 32. We finished last week in 27, so we're picking up in 28. Here we go. Then they led him from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, speaking of the Jewish leaders, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Jesus went out to, uh, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so Pilate said to him, Take him yourself and judge him according to your laws. And the Jews said to him, But we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. There's a lot here. John has already pointed out that Jesus is righteous earlier in the home of Annas, that same night in chapter 18, verse um, 22, when the officer there punches him in the face because Jesus responded the way he did, to the high priest. They were used to people coming in and groveling. They were used to people whom they accused, pleading that they were innocent. Jesus didn't do anything like that. 
He was absolutely in control. And everybody else was simply responding to him. And even here, he would not merely be interrogated. And Jesus responded by these words. Um, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? See what he's doing? He's questioning them. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now he's counseling them. He's exhorting them. And what he's saying is, you have a law. You have laws in place to govern how this is supposed to go, and you are violating those laws. And when he had said this, the officer standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him and said, if, you have spoken wrong, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus is saying, I did nothing wrong. I have never done anything wrong. Now, I've never met anyone who hasn't done anything wrong. I've met people who presented themselves as if they were incapable of doing wrong. <laughs> Woe to you if you were married to such a person. But Jesus never did anything wrong. After the hearing at Annas' house, they hurried him across the, the courtyard to Caiaphas' house because he was the official high priest that year. We can't see this in John, but there is evidence that in the other Gospels that when they got to the home of Caiaphas, they took a bit of a recess, no doubt for a number of hours. In fact, archaeologically, it's been discovered that the home that they think was Caiaphas' home has a dungeon in it, below it. Um, probably put Jesus there. No one knows for sure. Uh, they certainly held somebody there. The Sanhedrin was going to need time to, um, to kind of collect themselves and ask the Romans to execute Jesus. And that was going to present some... Um, some difficulty because there had to be a, cr a credible case to bring against him, and they didn't have one. However, they had already violated some of their own laws regarding how a trial should proceed. I think they knew that. One of those laws was you can't try a man the same day that you arrest him, and you can't have a trial at night. It has to be in full daylight at least after the sun comes up. And so they couldn't go on breaking laws without putting themselves in a compromised position before Pilate. And so rather than doing it under cover of darkness, they take a recess for a few hours. And they have time to go home and get some rest, collect their thoughts, to strategize. But the text says early in the morning they reconvened. And in Luke 22 we get the heart of what happened during that hearing. Luke 22. You can turn there with me if you want. Just don't lose sight of John 18. Luke is just one book, one gospel back. And it's kind of at the end, so easy to get to. Luke 22, verses 66 through 71. Luke 22, 66 through 71. Follow along now. When it was day, 
Uh, John says when it was early, the council of elders, the elders of the uh, people, assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. You just got to love Jesus. (laughs) Oh, for that kind of clarity and boldness. From now on, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? Did you just call yourself a Son of God? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? Which really they were saying, forget about the law. We don't need any witnesses. We all just heard him blaspheme. For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Well, Jesus was right. If he claimed to be the Messiah, they would not believe him. And if he asked them to give serious consideration to proofs of his Messiahship, they would not answer. They were simply out for blood. The facts simply didn't matter. The law didn't matter. Nevertheless, he assured them that a time was coming when the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And I infer from that what he means is that one of these days, coming soon, the tables are going to be turned, and I will be the judge, and you will be in the dock. Well, having now accused him of being worthy of death and without being permitted even a single witness on his behalf, they rushed him to the palace of Pontius Pilate, a place that was known as the Praetorium. It's interesting. Uh, if you can imagine the temple area, the temple, if, you, if you've never seen scale diagrams of what the temple was like sitting on Mount Zion, It was fantastic. It was huge. Herod's temple was huge. That's the temple that Herod built for the Jews to replace the scrawny little thing that they built for themselves after they came back from 70 years of captivity. He built this massive temple. And on one end of the temple, outside the gate, but connected to the wall, was a Roman fortress. It was called the Fortress of Antonia. And in that fortress was the home of Pontius Pilate. He didn't live there all the time. He actually lived in Caesarea. Um, That was his home base. But all the governors who were over the area of Judea understood that they needed to be in Jerusalem during the big feasts, especially the top three feasts, because they never knew when a riot would break out, there'd be some insurrection, somebody would call themselves the Messiah or whatever. And so they had to be there. So during the feasts, Pilate would be there, just outside the temple. So keep that in mind as we go along. So they take him just outside the temple to the fortress of Antonia, to Pilate's palace, his residence. It's still early in the morning. At this point, John reveals the ironic hypocrisy 
of these religious leaders. We're back in chapter 18. He tells us, verse 28, that the Jews would not enter Pilate's house, quote, so that they would not be defiled, but might, but might eat the Passover. The moral irony here is disgusting. As one author writes, they are taking extreme precautions to avoid ritual defilement, while at the same time they're, pre they're preparing to murder the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But no one seems to notice the absurdity, not to mention the illegality of it all. They simply press on with their evil plot against Jesus. When they arrive at Pilate's house, it seems the governor was expecting them. Again, it's, it's early, and, and that's nothing unusual. In that kind of climate, the Roman governors and all the authorities tended to do their business early in the morning. I mean, like by 10, 11 o'clock, they're done, especially in the summer. But he was there. He appeared to be waiting for them, and that's probably because he was the one who had granted approval to send the soldiers to help arrest Jesus in the first place. He, he kind of knew what was going on. In any case, the Jewish leaders seemed to think that Pilate was going to easily take Jesus and do whatever they wanted. Well, they were wrong. First thing Pilate does is ask for formal charges. Formal charges? That wasn't the deal. He says, verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, this is really the point, isn't it? And this is what John is emphasizing again and again, different words, different ways. But this question brings out the truth that the Holy Spirit wants John to, to hone in on. What is the accusation against this man? And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is emphasizing Jesus' righteousness. You go ahead and make any accusation. It's wrong. The religious leaders are unrighteous. Pilate was also proven eventually to be unrighteous. But the man who stands before them is the sinless son of God. This was the testimony of Jesus' entire life. And it had to be. The Levitical law required it. If there was to be a sacrifice, it had to be a lamb without what? Blemish. Had to be perfect. And you remember when the angel announced Jesus is coming to Mary, he said, the Holy Spirit, notice the source, is holy God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. The Holy Child. This is not just that he is separated from sinners. He is that. But that he will be one of moral perfection. We know that God is infinite in all of his perfections. One of his perfections is his righteousness, his morality. He is infinitely holy. And the Son of God would be infinitely holy because of his origin. He came from the Most High through the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Child, from a Holy God. Jesus' baptism 
God the Father announced from the sky, this is my beloved Son, in whom I, the Holy One, am well pleased. He has done nothing to bring me displeasure. Oh, that God could say that about our lives. That's why we need Christ. When Jesus addressed the demon-possessed man, the demons themselves cried out. This is fascinating, isn't it? They said, let us alone. What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, stop telling people that. Why? And nothing, the, th the thing that's worth, maybe the only thing that's worse than a false witness is a true witness that is incredible and everyone hates. We don't need demons going around saying, I'm the Christ, that'll sabotage things. But it was true. You are the Holy One of God. That's Luke 4, 34. And then even after he was crucified, kind of fast forward here to the end of Jesus' passion, he's, he's now on the cross. Remember who else is on the cross? Two thieves. They both start out kind of, they're on the cross and they're mocking him. And for whatever reason, by the mystery of God's providence, one of them repents, and it dawns on him what's happening. And so he rebukes the other thief. And he says this, we indeed are suffering justly. Isn't that interesting? No, no plea that this is unjust, I don't deserve this, I'm innocent, I was framed. We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The religious leaders won't admit that Jesus is the Son of God. But the thief on the cross does. How ironic is that? Who has got the mind of God in this moment? The religious leaders are, are taunting him. If, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. And even the Roman centurion at the end of the crucifixion, remember there was darkness, there was an earthquake. Jesus gave up the ghost. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit. When all of that was done, at the end of the day, Luke tells us, the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion said this. He praised God, saying, certainly, certainly. Okay, so this is the guy in charge of the execution. Certainly, without doubt, certainly, this was an innocent man. Now, why do you think the inspired author included that? He had to be perfect. From the moment he took his first breath to the time he said, it is finished, he had to be the holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, son of God. Pilate is discovering this for himself. But even now he knows what the Sanhedrin are doing and he's unwilling to be their puppet, so he asked them for a formal indictment. 
And by the way, he's saying, bring me the charge. What's, what's the charge? This is really one of the few proper legal procedures followed by anyone in this trial. And as I read this record, it's hard not to be shocked by the utter arrogance of the Jewish leaders at this point. They respond, look at verse 30. They respond, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. You know what they're saying here? They're saying, we don't have to give you an indictment. Listen, Pilate, if you know what's good for you, stop asking questions and do what we demand. I mean, this wasn't the leader of a church. These weren't leaders of... Of, uh, of spirituality on behalf of the one true God. I mean, despite their religious costumes and their sanctimonious words, these were not men of God. They were no better than mobsters and thugs working the system to rub out their enemy. And Pilate, however, is not impressed. Verse 31. Verse 31, he says, So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And they say to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Oh, that's what you want. You want me to kill him. Hmm. Now their intentions are clear. They want Jesus dead. And they want Rome to do their dirty work. You see, the Romans had granted the Sanhedrin a right to pass judgment upon their citizens as they broke their religious laws, but they were not permitted to execute the death penalty. Exceptions to that, maybe the only exception to that, was if they found a Gentile in the temple area. Archaeology has actually discovered the sign, and Dallas Seminary has a copy of it um, in in their exhibition case, The sign that was mounted on the temple that said no Gentiles allowed under penalty of death. And the the Romans were okay with that. Find a Gentile in your temple. I mean, it's posted. Stone him. And so they allowed for that. But anything else they thought was worthy of execution, they couldn't do it. Rome had to do that. There were times when they did it anyway, kind of as mob rule, kind of as a a lynching. There were at least a couple of times in Jesus' life when they sought to stone him to death, which was their preferred way. And in the case of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, they actually succeeded. They stoned him to death. In fact, I think this is what Pilate was actually encouraging them to do because he didn't want this case. It's almost as if Pilate is saying, judge, go ahead, judge him according to your law. Listen, take him, do with, with him whatever you want. Rome's going to look the other way. But they won't have it. This is really interesting when you think about the grand scheme of things. Because we know from seeing it from God's perspective that if the mission is going to be accomplished, Jesus has to get on the cross. Rome is the one that invented crucifixion. Pilate is in charge of ordering it. If anybody is going to be crucified in Jerusalem, it'll come by his order, and he is against it. And as you're you're watching this play out in your mind as it comes off the page, you're thinking, Pilate, no, 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 no. 
He's got to be crucified. And the bad guys are calling for what God wants. And the seeming good guy, at least at first, is trying to sabotage the whole thing. And Jesus is standing in the background, and what's he doing? Nothing. He's not trying to direct. He's not pleading his case. He's not doing anything. Perfect confidence in the sovereign providence of God. At this point, it looks like this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Jesus isn't flustered in the least. It's going to happen in just a matter of hours. You see, they really, um, these, these Jewish leaders, um, when Pilate says, take care of it yourselves, implication, Rome will look the other way. It's not what they wanted. So the question is, what did they want? Answer, it might surprise you. <laughs> they really wanted to eat dinner. They didn't want to miss the meal. The Passover feast lasted a week. They already had the formal Passover feast the night before. Jesus celebrated that with his disciples. But it was feasting all week long. It was the feast of Passover followed by uh, the feast of unleavened bread. And it was, it was a week-long feast together. And they didn't want to be disqualified from one night of feasting. There was a party to be had. They didn't want to become ceremonially defiled by touching a dead body or getting blood on themselves or anything else. And more importantly, they knew that many of the people liked Jesus and that in itself had kept them from arresting him before. They knew the crowds were for him. They liked Jesus. They thought maybe he's our king. There might be an uprising against them if, if they, the Jewish council, actually stoned the hero to death. They couldn't take that chance. But if they could get Rome to kill him, that would be perfect. Perfect. Not only could no one say that they, the council, had killed their hero, but the Jews knew that Moses said in Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. So, not only will we be rid of him, but we will be able to say, obviously, in the mystery of God's providence, he had Rome killed him, they hung him on a tree, for goodness sakes, and you remember what, Romans, what, what, uh, what uh, Moses said, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. So you were wrong, he wasn't the Messiah. He was cursed of God. We esteemed him, Isaiah says, smitten They don't want to stone him, and they want Rome to crucify him. No longer do they want to, to take matters into their own hands. They want him hung on a cross. And once again, we see the mighty hand of providence superintending the whole event. Because before the creation of the world, God had ordained that Jesus would die for his people by crucifixion. And John comments, verse 32. Watch this. This was, quote, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying the kind of death he was about to die. Now, 
where did Jesus say that? That he would die by crucifixion? Well, Jesus knew what the Father wanted. He knew that the Father wanted him to die by crucifixion, and he had explicitly told his disciples that this is the way it was going to play out. On their way to Jerusalem, and I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, here's what Jesus says. They're coming to Jerusalem for the last time, and he says, we are going up. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify You see, the righteous one came to die as a lawbreaker, though his whole life was perfect in every way. 400 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had predicted this of the Messiah when he wrote in Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he himself, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And by the way, that's the same prophet who in chapter 6 of his own book, or at least named after him, when he sees God, he casts a curse upon himself. Woe is me. And the reason for it is, I am a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth. Later on in the same book, here, Isaiah 53, he will say of the Messiah, no deceit was ever found in his mouth. How unlike us he will be. Later on, the apostle Peter will pick up on Isaiah's words and exhort us on how we should suffer in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's a great text, and it's kind of a different message about how to suffer, how to suffer well, and why. In 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22, Jesus takes this exact same verse, but he, I mean, uh, Peter takes this exact same verse, but before so, he leads up to it by teaching on suffering. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And now the quotation, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. She's saying, Jesus suffered as the perfect son of God. He didn't deserve any suffering, but you do. He suffered well. And it was unjust. You are suffering how? And much of your suffering is just. You see, beloved, it was not just Jesus' death that's important to us. It is also his sinless, holy life. And the reason he lived 33 years was to fulfill all righteousness and then die for all of our unrighteousness. Oh, what grace. Oh, what mercy. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? My, oh, my. Was that point one? <laughs> so the guiltless one is accused. Second, the guiltless one is interrogated. Look at, we'll, we'll pick up on verse 33 here in a minute. But before we read the next section, it might be helpful to remember 
part of Luke's written testimony. The Jews realize that Pilate is not simply going to do what, they, what they're telling him. He's insisting that they present formal charges. They need to come up with something that will stimulate Rome's appetite for justice more than simply the accusation of blasphemy, which is all they have. Therefore, they quickly fabricate new charges of sedition against the state. And Luke writes, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Sedition, unrest, refusing to pay taxes, calling himself a king. Of course, anyone who followed Jesus could bear witness that none of this is true. After all, it was Jesus himself who, when asked about whether people should pay taxes to Caesar, famously said, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I take that to mean pay your taxes. By the way, it's about that time. Be faithful, trust the Lord, do it right, have a clear conscience. Better to have a clear conscience than money in the bank. That's a different sermon too, but may the Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. Uh, amen. <laughs> Pilate was concerned about the accusation of Jesus claiming to be king. I wanted to know what that was about. Is that true? What kind of king does he think he is? How many followers does he have? Should Rome be concerned? So Pilate brings Jesus into the palace to interrogate him. And pick up a verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered. <laughs> How would you answer? No, stop saying that. I've not, not done anything wrong. No, nope. Jesus answered. Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate, no doubt frustrated, says, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? That's the question. That's the question. You could add a word. What have you done wrong? That's what John wants us to hone in on. What have you done? What have you done? What has Jesus done? Jesus had already answered that question in John 14, 31. I do exactly what the Father commands me to do. Exactly. I, I knew I was running out of time, so I didn't include all of the other instances when he said things like that, just in John, but repeatedly. I've come to do the will of my Father. Not my will, but yours be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. No other human being could ever make this claim. I do exactly what the Father commanded me, but Jesus did. His whole life was governed by obedience to the Father, and he never once altered course. He never said, Father, not this time, not your will but mine. Never. The only thing that Jesus has ever done was obey the Father. In this sense, he came as the light to the world, but men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, and they love it so. John 3, 19. Well, once again, in this exchange, we witness Jesus exercising complete control over himself and his circumstances. When you read the literature on Roman trials, you discover that everyone, whether innocent or guilty, 
took on the posture of groveling for mercy, but not Jesus. And Pilate asks him a question that puts his life in the balance. The interrogated man becomes the interrogator. And Jesus turned the question on Pilate. And there's no fear of man here. There's no groveling. There's no declaration of his being framed or no counter-accusation against his captors. Jesus may be the, the one whose hands are bound, but he's the freest person in the room. He's certainly the freest person in this whole narrative. And notice how Jesus answers, verses 36 through 38. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Hmm. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You see what he's saying? You are claiming to be a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For I have been born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, what's Jesus doing there at the end of that? I mean, if you're going to say you're king, say you're king. But he says, I have come into this world for this purpose, to testify of the truth. So here's the question, what is that truth? The truth is everything that God is and once revealed. And the truth is standing in front of you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he's saying, I came to testify about me. Yes, I am a king. And Pilate said, notice Jesus' last statement, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Almost an imitation there, Pilate. You hear my voice? Can you hear me? Can your heart hear me? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And now Pilate's frustrated. What is truth? The cynic that he was. What is truth? And he turns on his heel and walks out. Now next, next week we'll come back and explore the implications of Jesus as king. I would encourage you to do what I did this week. Circle every reference here to king or kingdom in chapter 18 and 19. There's a, there's a theme here, and we'll explore that next week. But for now, whatever it means that Jesus is king, it's apparently, in, in Pilate's mind, it presents no threat to Rome or anyone else and Pilate's not hesitant to say so. Look at verse 38. Um, they kind of split the verse here, but second half of verse 38. And when he had said this, he went out again, back out onto the porch, over the Jews. And he said to them, here it is. This is the name of the message, by the way, in your bulletin. I find no guilt in him. I find nothing wrong. I find no sin. I find no crime. There is nothing wrong with this person. I find no guilt in him. That's what John wants you to hear. Though he's standing trial, he is guiltless. Though he is being condemned, he is the perfect, holy, righteous son of God, and nobody can prove otherwise. 
This is the whole point. I find no guilt in him. Even under formal interrogation, Jesus is found holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. He is the righteous son of God. And so we've seen the guiltless one accused, the guiltless one interrogated, and finally the guiltless one is rejected. John assumes we've read the other gospel accounts here, so he doesn't tell us the entire story, but somewhere in here, Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and that was important to him, and maybe a way out, because that wasn't his jurisdiction, that was Herod's jurisdiction, and he thinks, oh, you know, praise the gods, I can send Jesus to somebody else, let let Herod handle this. So... It's interesting, the unintended consequences of that decision. He sends Jesus over to Herod Antipas, and um, Pilate hopes uh, to pass Jesus off to him and let him render judgment. And I told you already that Pilate's residence was attached to the temple on one side. Herod's residence was attached to the temple on the other side. (laughs) And so they take Jesus, and who knows, are they marching through the temple or around the temple? Here's the unintended, unintended consequence. Every time they move Jesus, more people see it. And by the time they get back to where Pilate is, a, a really big crowd has formed. I mean, these have been followers of Jesus. Some of them hate Jesus. Some of them love Jesus. So Herod gets Jesus. And we're told in, in Matthew that when Herod saw him, he was happy because he, he really had heard about Jesus and, and wanted Jesus to come and perform a miracle for him. And so he interrogates Jesus, and it's interesting. Though he spoke with Pilate, he refuses to say a word to Herod. Herod hammers him with question after question after question. And Jesus, like a lamb before his shears, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Pilate has some fun with him. He dresses him in one of his royal robes, sends him back. I'm sorry, Herod dresses him in one of his royal robes. It's kind of a mockery. Sends him back to Pilate, dressed like a king. And as he goes, more and more people are being drawn into this. And it seems that as Jesus is paraded back and forth across the temple, people are getting excited. People are getting riled up. And Pilate's starting to get more and more concerned here. He can't have a riot breakout. Luke's account, after Jesus returns to Pilate and addresses the crowd, here's, here's what we read, Luke 23, 13 through 16. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I find no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. And nor did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, there is nothing deserving death that has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. You say, well, punish him? Well, he still wants to appease the Jews. He doesn't want to riot. He's no doubt thinking, maybe if I just whip him, Really, really bad. Um, and many people died from the, the floggings, the scourging, it was called, that they received from the Romans. Um, maybe then they'll be appeased. But I'm not going to kill him. 
Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with the execution of this innocent man, so he came up with a plan, knowing that many of the people admired him. Think about this. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was just last week, hardly a week ago. And so Pilate thought he could make an, an offer to the masses that surely would take advantage of the situation and save Jesus. And so he announces, verse 39 and 40, But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And so they cried out, saying, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Interesting point here that's not included in the story. Pilate makes this declaration, this offer to the crowd. Shall I release to you the king of the Jews? He's thinking all those people who were yelling Hosanna last week are going to say, yes, because the only alternative is this murderer, insurrectionist, uh, 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 what's his name? (laughs) Barabbas. I almost said Barnabas. I knew that was wrong. (laughs) Um, I mean, who wants him to be released? I mean, if, if, if the Jewish leaders start crying for Barabbas and the crowds are saying, no, we'd rather have Jesus, then that's egg on their face, right? But something happens that's not included in this story. And again, John assumes we've read it. He makes this proposition to the people and somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, your wife has sent you a note. Remember what the, the note said? So he turns, he goes, and he, he gets this message or someone's speaking it to him. Listen, your wife called. She said, I've had really bad dreams about this guy. Don't have anything to do with him. Don't have anything to do with him. In the time it took him to go find out what the message was, process that a little bit, and come back, the Jews had circulated through the crowd and said, you demand Barabbas. And Pilate comes back and says, so who is it, king of the Jews or Barabbas? And the people said, not this man but Barabbas. And Pilate says, what do I do with him? And the crowd says, crucify him. And he says, but what evil has he done? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate is so sure Jesus is innocent, he takes a basin. This is a Jewish ritual. He's a Roman. He takes a basin and he puts it on the the portico, the judgment seat, the pavement where he stands, and he washes his hands and says, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. See to it yourselves. And then he did the unthinkable. He gave the order for him to be crucified. It's amazing, isn't it? On so many levels, it's amazing. And in all of this, Jesus never spoke a word of his own defense. He simply, and Peter says this in that same passage I read a little while ago, in 1 Peter 2, about Jesus' suffering. And you should suffer like he did. How did Jesus suffer? He did not revile when he was reviled, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. And Peter's point You suffer that way, like he did. You see, beloved, no matter what Pilate did, nothing could keep the Father's plan of redemption from playing out exactly as he had ordained. Jesus, our great high priest, had come as mediator between God and men. 
Yes, he would die as a condemned criminal, but he would die as one who lived a perfectly righteous life so that we could be declared righteous in him, justified. And Paul explains the theological significance of this narrative when he writes in Romans 5, picking up with verse 5. For while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise God. For one will hardly die for a righteous in the man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The life of Christ. His perfect, sinless, holy life. Righteousness. You must be as good as God. Jesus was God. And God in his mercy and grace attributes by grace, through faith, the righteousness of Christ to our account. Just as Abraham was reckoned righteous by his faith in God's word, his promise. So we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, and my friends, if you're visiting, if you don't belong to him this morning, I plead with you. Stop trusting in your own righteousness. You need to repent not only of your sin, but you need to repent of your righteousness as well. Self-righteousness will only condemn you. Believing that your sin isn't so bad is enough to send you to hell. It will condemn you. And by his infinite mercy and grace, God has provided the righteousness you desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. And he has provided it in Jesus Christ. I plead with you, turn, turn from your own false righteousness and fly to Jesus who alone has accomplished everything on your behalf. He has done it all. He's paid it all. He's done it all. He's accomplished it all. Come to him in humble faith and repentance and he will receive you. There is a spotless and holy mediator between God and sinners. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, every time I open this book to study, I'm astounded. And especially, especially so now that I'm studying this, the, this part of the gospel. It's shocking. It's it's maddening at points, and it is glorious. It is your truth. It is your saving truth.
Would you send your spirit to use this to affect us, to not walk out of this room having forgotten what we saw when we looked into the mirror of your word, but rather may we respond to it in a manner that pleases you, the manner for which it was delivered by you. Be glorified now, Father. We praise you and we give you thanks for what you're doing and will do because of Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name.